0: Welcome to the Husband Material Podcast, where we help Christian men outgrow porn. Why? So you can change your brain, heal your heart, and save your relationship. My name is Drew Boa, and I'm here to show you how. Let's go. I am super, super excited about today's guest, Sheila Ray Gregoire. She is a speaker, blogger, and author of many books, including, most recently, The Great Sex Rescue, The Lies You've Been Taught, and How to Recover What God Intended. Welcome, Sheila. Thank you. It's great to be here. I am really passionate about your message in this book because I need to hear it, and I believe there could be nothing more important for our audience to hear. I usually have kind of a gentle, tender tone. And yet I think sometimes we need to be challenged too. And we need to, we need to hear some really difficult things. And so I'm, I'm hoping that, that today will be very convicting in a good way. And, and also that it will help us to enjoy sex even more. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> Sheila, why are you so passionate about the topic of sex?
1: Oh, gosh! Um, well, I mean, I'm married, so you know, I kind of want good sex and <laughs> and it wasn't very good when we first got married, so it took a while to figure that out. So I think every time you have to figure something out and wrestle things out with God, you tend to get more passionate about it because he's had to teach you a lot of stuff. Um, but I have been writing in this space for about thirteen years now. Um, I've been blogging, writing marriage, and sex books, and I I've talked to hundreds of thousands of women in comments on my blog and there's just so much pain out there. Um, and I had been trying so hard to just give good advice. You know, we're just going to give nice, good healing advice. And I wasn't getting anywhere. Like I did this for years and I wasn't getting anywhere. And it was only two years ago that I sat down one day and I actually read a Christian marriage book because I know this sounds weird, but I've been writing them and I never read any because <laughs> I was afraid of plagiarizing. So like, here I am, I'm in this sphere, but I hadn't read other Christian marriage books. And I read the book, Love and Respect. And it was like a nuclear bomb went off in my living room because when I was reading that book in the sex chapter, he said, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. And the husband's need is for physical release. There was nothing about intimacy. There was nothing about the fact that a woman could have a libido. There was nothing about the fact that a woman can feel pleasure, let alone that she should feel pleasure. It was all about how he needs his release or he's going to come under satanic attack and have an affair. And I thought, if that is what is being taught in the most widely used marriage study in North American churches... No wonder we're having issues. And so I'm just really passionate about setting the record straight and bringing us back to what Jesus intended.
0: Amen. Sheila, you've literally talked to hundreds of thousands of people. You did a huge research study with 22,000 women Mm -hmm. asking them about their experiences with sex and intimacy. What did you find in that research?
1: Yeah. So what we tried to do was we asked the question, are there certain common evangelical teachings that are actually hurting sex and marriage for women? And the reason we were looking at women is because usually it's women who have a lower libido. So they have a harder time wanting sex and it's women who have a much harder time reaching orgasm. So we thought if we could figure out what makes it worse for women, we could fix it for everybody. Um, So that's what we were doing. And when I say that we were looking at evangelical teachings, I don't mean we were looking at biblical stuff. <laughs> like, there's a lot of stuff that's being taught in the evangelical world that is not necessarily biblical. And so we wanted to see, are some of these teachings actually hurting women? And so we, we asked first about marital satisfaction, then about sexual satisfaction, and then about all kinds of different teachings. And we were able to compare people who did believe something with people who didn't believe something and see how that affected them. And we identified a whole bunch of beliefs that were really toxic, but there were four main ones that we look at in the great sex rescue and that we are trying to rescue couples from.
0: That seems like a great direction for us to go. So what are those four things, maybe briefly and then in depth? Yeah. So
1: I would say sort of like in Lord of the Rings, there's the one ring to rule them all. Like there's the, there's the one teaching that rules them all that kind of encapsulates everything. And that's, that's exactly what I quoted Emerson Eggert saying. If your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. So sex is all about the guy. And that is the way that it's been phrased. You know, women need emotional connection. Men need sex. Um, Sex is this need that he has. You feel loved just just through affection. He can only feel loved through sex. And this is what we're taught again and again and again. And imagine if you're a woman and this is what you hear from the time you're young. And then women get married and we wonder why women have no libido. Like, have we ever heard of self-fulfilling prophecies? You know, (laughs) it's just crazy. Like, do you really want your wife to hear her whole life? You don't like sex. Sex should just be about intimacy because that's biblically what sex is. You know, biblically, sex is a deep knowing of each other. It isn't just physical. Genesis 4, verse 1, Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived a son. And we laugh at that like God's embarrassed of using the real word. But the Hebrew word there is this deep longing to be connected. It's the same word David uses in the Psalms when he says, search me and know me, O God. You know, so biblically, sex is intimate. We know it's pleasurable for both from the Song of Solomon, and we know it's completely mutual from 1 Corinthians 7. So it's this intimate, mutual, pleasurable experience. But so often, the way that we portray sex is that it is only one sided intercourse. Mm -hmm. So as long as he climaxes, you've had sex, and you're leaving a lot of women really empty and feeling used.
0: So we really need to redefine sex. What do you see as the difference between making love and having intercourse?
1: Yeah. So making love is something where both people need to matter. Like this is about, I. I it's not that I want sex, it's that I want you. <laughs> and that's there's a huge difference in that. Um, when we have sex and we're only after a physical high, it's actually very depersonalizing. Like this idea that, that sex automatically makes you feel loved or closer is not actually true. Sex can be one of the most dehumanizing, depersonalizing experiences, and it can be actually quite traumatic. One of the things that we measured, um, so we looked at orgasm rates, we looked at rates of sexual pain. We also looked at how emotionally connected during sex do you feel? Um, And when women don't feel emotionally connected during sex, their primary response after sex is feeling used um uh, feeling empty, feeling degraded, and about 20% of women re- report those kinds of feelings after sex. So you know, sex does not equal intimacy. Intercourse does not equal intimacy. Making love equals intimacy, and we need to make we need to see that as two distinct things.
0: Totally. Sex is not a one-sided vaginal penetration to orgasm.
1: Hmm. Exactly.
0: Can you talk a little bit about that gap, the orgasm gap, and why it's so important?
1: So interestingly, I actually thought it would be higher <laughs> that the orgasm gap would be higher. So, but um, I guess I'm more cynical than than most people. But anyway, um, so n- roughly 95% of men almost always or always orgasm during a sexual encounter, but the equivalent number for women is only around 48. So we have a 47 point orgasm gap and that's huge because how would you like it guys (laughs) if you had sex, but most of the time you didn't orgasm and then we wonder why women don't want to have sex, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: right? And so if we can change how we see sex so that it isn't just about his orgasm, but it's about a mutual experience, we can often bridge not just the orgasm gap, but also the libido gap. Because a lot of guys are really upset that their wives don't want sex more, but when it does nothing for them or they feel emotionally disconnected, why would they want sex?
0: So, this perception that all men have a greater sexual desire than all women—that seems related to this.
1: Yeah. So what we did after we did our study, after we did our we we um, also looked at all the peer-reviewed journal articles as to what constitutes healthy sexuality for women, what makes it more likely she'll reach orgasm, all these sorts of things. And then we created this 12-point rubric of healthy sexuality to mark books on. And we looked at the top 13 best-selling sex and marriage books in Christianity and evangelicalism. Um, And the vast majority of them present sex as something which he wants and she gives. Mm. So he has the libido, she doesn't. That's actually not true. Okay. Um, In about 58% of marriages, yes, he has the higher libido, but in 19%, she does. And in 23%, it's roughly equal. And in the cases where it's equal, the marital satisfaction is the highest. And as we talk to those couples, it's not necessarily that they have an equal libido. It's just that the way that sex plays out in their relationship that when someone initiates, they just tend to have sex. And so it's not clear who has the higher libido because they just naturally work towards that in their marriage. And they've, they've naturally developed a good give and take because they have a healthy marriage. You know, <laughs> And that's where we see really high marital satisfaction. Um, but this idea that all guys have a higher libido than all women is just not true. You know, men as a whole have a higher libido than women as a whole. But I like to say, you know, my great-grandfather was five foot six and my great-grandmother was five foot 11. And so, yes, we know that men are taller than women, but they didn't have scientists knocking on their door saying, how is this possible? (laughs) Because we all instinctively understand that just because men are taller than women doesn't mean that some men can't be shorter than some women. But when it comes to libido, we seem to forget that. And we say things like, men are visual in a way that women will never understand. Science doesn't actually support that. The, the most recent meta-analyses say that women are equally visual. We're just, we just are visual about different things. And we get aroused in different ways. And we experience that arousal in different ways. But we're equally visual. Like, it's just, it's not, a lot of the stuff that our evangelical books are saying is not true.
0: And some of these false teachings are coming from one of the most popular books for men, Every Man's Battle.
1: Yes, that was one of the worst on our rubric.
0: Now, if you've read Every Man's Battle and it's been helpful for you, our goal is not to invalidate the positive experience uh, that you've had. What we do need to do is get very clear on the lies that we're taught and what's the truth.
1: Mm -hmm. So one of the big teachings, well, actually there were two big teachings in Every Man's Battle that we measured on our survey to see if they're harmful or helpful. And they were very, very harmful. The first is just simply all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. When women are taught that, even if they don't believe it, this is the one teaching that even if women don't believe it, it has negative repercussions. (laughs) So if you just simply grow up in a church community where this is widely taught, you're far less likely to have trust in your husband later. Um, You're less likely to get aroused during sex. Like this is a toxic thing. And if you believe it, the effects are even worse. So orgasm rates go down, arousal rates go down, marital trust goes down, um, marital satisfaction goes down. It's just all around a terrible thing.
0: <laughs> so while for some men, it might feel like validating, like, oh, I'm not alone. For women, this is devastating.
1: Yeah, Now we actually, we actually have surveyed men since, and that's coming out in a book called The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex, which is coming out in March. And mm-hmm. it, is, it is equally bad for men. It hurts their sex life. It makes them way more selfish lovers. They're less likely to do foreplay. Um, They're less likely to have their wives orgasm. Like it's just, it's just toxic all the way around. And it's also unbiblical, but this, this is a big thing that I want people to get. It's just not even biblical. (laughs) Yeah. Like the biblical, all men do not struggle with lust. And in our survey, um, and maybe, maybe we should come back to talk about this one because this, this is in the good guys guide. It's not in the great sex rescue. So you're getting some, you're getting some previews here, but 75% of men said that they struggle with, with lust on a daily basis. Okay. So already that's 25% who don't. So it's not all men, but even among the 75%, we dug down deep on that. And we asked all kinds of hypothetical questions and all kinds of scenarios, which we actually took from every man's battle. <laughs> so every man's battle is presenting these things as, as common. So we actually gave them those scenarios and said, how would you react in this scenario? Um, so we had multiple scenarios. We looked at porn use. We looked at intrusive thoughts, we, uh, you know, um, memories of porn use, how often these things come up, et cetera. and barely over half of those 75% show any signs of lust at all. So the majority of men who think they struggle with lust don't. Wow. What's happening, and this this is something I'm very passionate about, is that we're conflating noticing with lusting. And we think that if you notice a woman is beautiful, you've lusted after her and you haven't. You know, Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery. He didn't say whoever sees a woman has a nice chest. Whoever notices a woman's cleavage, he didn't say any of that. That is not lust. (laughs) And it is very possible to notice that a woman has a nice figure and then think nothing more of it and go on with your day. You're not some dirty, rotten person for noticing.
0: Right. Lust involves intent.
1: Intent. Exactly. It's a deliberate action looking combined with a deliberate mindset.
0: And not every man struggles with this. I was really struck by one of your commenters on your blog who said that this idea that all men struggle with lust caused him to view himself as a monster.
1: Yeah. Well, he read, he read every man's battle and he read all of the anecdotes about masturbating to your sleeping sister-in-law, um, masturbating in the car at a gym parking lot, hurrying home from work to masturbate at your neighbor, the sight of your neighbor. Um, the youth guy, the youth leader who rapes the 15 year Um, You know, he's reading all of these things, which are all presented as normal. And he's thinking, This is what I'm going to grow up to be. And most men do not masturbate in the car, in a gym parking lot. They don't.
0: And most men are not rapists.
1: No, they're not. And if you're a youth volunteer and you have sex with a 15 year old, that is rape. And every man's battle did not call it that. They said that her parents called it rape, but they never said it was. They were just horrified that the parents thought this was rape because she had been so flirty. So they don't even understand abuse.
0: And then some of these books, including Every Man's Battle, also normalize and even promote what amounts to rape within marriage.
1: Yes. That was something which really made us sad is this idea that coercion is okay. Like there's a line in Every Man's Battle where they say, we know some men who are coercing their wives into sex um, once, twice, even three times a day. If your if your husband is demanding sex more than once a day, you know you have a problem. So it's okay to coerce your wife into sex once a day, but if it's more than that, there's a problem. Coercion is not just physical. This is what a lot of people don't understand. Um, let's look. Like, I've talked to women who say, "I need to have sex before small group." Because if I don't, he gets really grumpy and he's really rude to everybody who comes over for small group. So I need to have sex to control his emotions. If we're going to take the kids to the beach tomorrow, I need to have sex the night before or else he's grumpy and he ruins the day for us. Like That's also a form of coercion. Because if you need to have sex in order to prevent something bad from happening, that is a form of coercion. So, um, Or if he's constantly berating Her with Bible verses, you know, do not deprive, you need to submit to me. That's a form of spiritual abuse and coercion. Um, And I think there's a big misunderstanding of what coercion is. In the book, um, The Act of Marriage by Tim LaHaye, which is one of the best selling sex books, it was written in the 70s, but it's been updated many times since. And he has a story of a man who raped his wife, kicking and screaming on her honeymoon, and proceeded to rape her throughout their marriage because she never liked sex, because that was her introduction. Um, and Tim LaHaye bemoans the fact that the woman has such a bad view of sex that she's telling other people have bad sex is, and he says and he talks about this woman and her equally unhappy husband. So she call he calls the rapist equally unhappy Ugh. as the rape victim.
0: Feels sick to my stomach.
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of of marital rape and coercion and all of that present in our books and i think it comes from this idea that men own their wives' bodies and that men need sex and women were designed and are entitled to it and that's what our books tell men is you're entitled to this and it misses out on intimacy completely um and to give you an example of of how this actually works because this is this is something that people can can kind of grasp the most dangerous message that we measured was the idea that a woman is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. We called that the obligation sex message. And it's very much present in Every Man's Battle. Um, now, we only we only looked at the original version. I know that there was an updated version, but it came out after we had done our our reviews. So I'm looking at the original version. Um, and in that book, he tells women that you may not want to have sex, but you need to do the right thing. And over and over again, he needs release. Give him release. Um, and it's, he, they never, ever mentioned that sex should feel good for her. It's only um, when he's quitting porn or lust, he's going to transfer all of his sexual desire to you. And where he might've been coming to you for five bowls of sexual gratification a week, now he comes to you for 10 bowls of sexual gratification a week. And this is a good thing and you need to provide it so that he doesn't watch porn. And, and so this is this obligation sex message, which we hear everywhere. When a woman believes that, her chance of experiencing vaginismus or primary sexual pain, which is when the muscles in the vaginal wall contract and it makes, um, makes them really tight. So penetration is difficult, if not impossible. Her chance of experiencing that increases to the same extent statistically as if she had been abused. So a woman, a woman's body literally interprets the obligation sex message as abuse because abuse says to a woman you don't matter he has the right to use you however he wants and the obligation sex message says the same thing you don't matter he gets he has the right to use you and our bodies literally freeze up they go into f- fight flight or freeze response
0: It's a trauma response
1: yep mm-hmm.
0: So we as men have a choice to make here We need to choose to take responsibility for our own sexuality and to become protectors to become lovers who care about the passion of our partners and not just a physical release this is towards the end of the book the great sex rescue we face a choice do we want women to give husbands intercourse even if sex is terrible potentially traumatic and coercive Or do we want to change the way we talk about sex so women are able to freely choose to embrace and enjoy sex, even if that means the number of sexual encounters goes down? Will we decide to view sex as a life-giving, mutual serving and knowing of each other? Or will we continue to see it as a spirit-killing entitlement and obligation? preach
1: yeah you know all of the messages that we measured you know boys uh boys will push your sexual boundaries um a wife is obligated to give her husband sex uh you need to give your husband sex so he doesn't watch porn um uh all of them were correlated with slightly higher frequency of sex not a lot we're not talking like once a month versus twice a week we're talking like maybe like you know 2.3 times a week versus like 1.9 times a week like it's not it's not a huge thing right but it is slightly more frequent, but they're also correlated with much lower sexual and marital satisfaction. And our question is, why is it that all of these books, because this is the vast majority of our evangelical bestsellers, very few handled sex well. The only the, the exception is The Gift of Sex by the Penners. That was excellent, <laughs> but, but very few handled things well. And why is it that people consider... Um, frequency more important than anything else and the only thing that we can think of is that they don't understand real intimacy they don't have a clue what real intimacy feels like because they think ejaculation is all it is and it's like it's it's god that's not the way god designed it god designed it so that it's all together, the emotional, the physical, the spiritual, it's all experienced through making love and it becomes very passionate, but that's only happened when she matters
0: too. Amen. That can only happen when she matters too. And I love how you say sex is about both of you. So to make sex great, it has to be great for both people. Mm -hmm. How can we as men become better lovers?
1: First of all, You got to figure out where the clitoris is. And you got to understand that she's not broken if intercourse doesn't do it for her. I think we see sex so much as intercourse that then, you know, we have sex, she doesn't feel anything. And we figure, well, I guess she just doesn't like sex, as opposed to understanding that the majority of those 48% of women who do reach orgasm frequently do so much more reliably through roots other than intercourse. And that's the way God made us. He did not put the clitoris up the vagina where it got maximum stimulation for intercourse. He put it outside because the purpose is that men need to take some time to serve their wives. So You know, so, so start grasping that, figure that out. doesn't mean that intercourse can't feel good by the way. It definitely can. I have a whole orgasm course, which goes into that on my site, but, um, but definitely realize that for most women, there's other routes that are more reliable and you got to get good at those first. Um, but the other thing is we talked to so many women who said that the big breakthrough with sex came when their husbands gave them the ability to say No. Um, like, I'll tell you the story of Kay. And uh, she, they actually had a really good sex life until the kids started to come. And then after each kid, it got progressively worse because she had postpartum depression, she tore, she had a harder time with hormones and breastfeeding, and her libido just tanked. And by the third kid, she was like, I've had it. And she kept initiating every 72 hours because. Every man's battle, sheet music, power of a praying wife—all of these books tell you that you're supposed to have sex. He needs it every seventy-two hours. By the way, there's no medical um, basis for that. We checked. It—it—it it, it all comes from something James Dobson said in 1977, and it's become gospel truth since. But there is no medical basis for that. There's no, you know, there's nothing there. Anyway. So she was initiating every 72 hours and she wasn't reaching orgasm. She wasn't getting aroused. She was just getting more and more resentful. And after a couple of years of this, she sat down and she said, I can't do it anymore. Like I really can't. And her husband had had no idea that she felt so obligated. And he said, I don't ever want you to do something you don't want to do. Like, please, this needs to be about both of us. So if, we're, if you ever just don't feel like it tonight, tell me and we just won't do it. Or if even if we're in the middle of something and you're like, no, I changed my mind, tell me and we'll stop. And over the next few months, he proved that to her. So she stopped when she needed to stop or when she wanted to stop. And she realized, no, sex is really a choice. It's not something I have to do. This is my choice. And her libido came back, her ability to orgasm came back, and they've settled into a totally new r- routine now. You know where whoever initiates wants to initiate, and they've ended up having sex roughly every seventy-two hours.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh!
1: So still the same frequency, but it's totally different because she knows it's her choice, mm-hmm. and that is what has changed the dynamic in so many marriages. Is when you give women back the choice instead of feeling like it's something you have to do, kind of what God does with us right? He gives us free will. He doesn't force us to love him. He gives us free will. And it's scary. That's God making himself vulnerable to us. But it's not real unless it's free will. And to make men feel better, because I know that that's a scary thing, but if if she doesn't feel obligated, then will I even get sex? What we found is that in marriages where (laughs) there's high marital satisfaction, she feels emotionally close during sex, There's no sexual dysfunction. Um, She frequently orgasms. And any porn uses in the past, frequency totally takes care of itself. It's not an issue. Yeah. So deal with the other stuff and you're going to end up with the passionate sex life that you want.
0: I think this is really encouraging for single guys too. Mm -hmm. Um, Because a lot of them view marriage as this this is my license to have an outlet and to get what I want. But God's design is so, so, so much bigger and better than that. Yep. It's about mutual giving and receiving. And and it has a rhythm that will change in different seasons. Personally, I've been married for five and a half years. And for over 80% of that time, my wife has been pregnant or breastfeeding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our sex life has looked different. Yeah. And there have been long seasons where not much is happening, and I've been totally fine. Yeah. When we're able to grow up sexually and mature, we don't need it. I've been free from born for seven years. It's not a battle anymore. And this does not have to be the exception. The other coaches on my team at Husband Material have had the same experience. Six years of freedom, 12 years of freedom, not a battle anymore. And we're able to give our partners complete permission to be where they're at. Even in the middle of sexual activity, it's okay to stop. That's not going to lead me to a train wreck of a high risk of relapse. Yep. I want to give people some of the language that that you offer in The Great Sex Rescue. Some things that husbands have said. You are allowed to say no. And in fact, I want you to say no if you're uncomfortable because I don't want sex to be something you don't want to do. I know you're not ready. I'm okay. This needs to be something we do when it's good for you, too. I'm not interested in anything that causes you pain. I'd rather wait if you're okay with that.
1: Mm -hmm. That's so good. I know. (laughs) That's what women need to hear. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know why evangelical resources don't say that. Like seriously, the number of books that tell women, like Intended for Pleasure said after, like when you're postpartum, you need to give him manual stimulation as often as you gave him sex before you were pregnant. So the main concern when you're postpartum is making sure he still ejaculates. Now, Intended for Pleasure was written like in the 80s, but Married Sex by Gary Thomas was written in October, like two months ago. And in it, he talks about how during the postpartum period, she can give him handjobs because he really loves it because she gets so aroused. Like he loves feeling the wetness, her wetness against his thigh, her moans, her growing excitement. And it's like, Gary, women do not get aroused if they feel like they have to give handjobs postpartum. And that wetness against your thigh, that ain't lubrication, buddy, if she's postpartum. (laughs) Yeah. Like, let's just have some dignity and decency. (laughs)
0: So it seems that women are in a really difficult bind when they grow up in evangelical purity culture. They're supposed to be the gatekeepers protecting men from their sexual urges before marriage. And then after marriage, they're supposed to be the gatekeepers providing for those urges. I mean, how crazy making is that?
1: Yeah, and it's it's really ugly. I, I, I want men to understand or just to, to try to think of how ugly that is. When my youngest daughter was 11, um, she developed quite early and a Sunday school teacher took her aside and said she was going to have to start watching what shirts she wore and not wore, wear V-necks anymore because she didn't want... To be a stumbling block for all the adult men in the church as well and telling an 11 year old girl that you could be like we had such a hard time getting her to church for the next few weeks because she was completely grossed out she was like the pastor too like and she started naming all the men that she really liked in the church like are they all staring at my boobs like you know like it was it was horrifying um when both my girls were teenagers and they were on praise teams they were told what they couldn't wear on the stage because the men in the front row might look, try to look up their skirts and they had to not be a distraction during worship. Like this is what girls are told all of the time. And it makes sex seem so ugly. Yeah. Like you really feel grossed out by your body. You feel grossed out by men. And then of course, you know, of those girls, a quarter of them are sexual assault survivors, So you add that to the mix (laughs) Um, and it's, it's really difficult to see sex in a positive light. And the fact that so many of our books don't leave any room for what women experience, but instead tell women you need to provide for his every need. Because otherwise he will watch porn or come under satanic attack or whatever it might be. Um, like Kevin Lehman in sheet music tells women, sometimes you're going to want to pu- push him off of you. And sometimes it's going to feel forced, but you know, it, it is an obligation and you need to do it. and That's a good thing. Well, we measured it. When you have sex out of obligation, it's not a good thing. Your pain rates go up. Marital satisfaction goes down. Everything goes down. It is not a good thing. But this is what we've been told.
0: Duty rather than delight.
1: Yep, exactly. And it's not, it's nothing to do with the heart of God. What
0: are some of the things that you found really help to increase delight?
1: Allowing for sharing your heart. One of the big issues um, is that we have often used sex to mask other issues in our relationship. So we think as long as we're having sex, you know, sex can be kind of like the way that you check in on whether the relationship is okay. So as long as we're having sex, we must be okay. But when you keep doing that for long enough, sex becomes really shallow because sex needs to be the culmination of a healthy relationship. It isn't the cause of it. Um, we found that that couples where there was higher frequency tended to be happier, but. <laughs> And it's difficult to measure which way the the causation goes with things like that. So we pulled it apart in some focus groups and it was quite clear that frequency alone cannot cause good marital satisfaction, but good marital satisfaction can cause frequency. So just having sex alone is not going to increase anything. So the key, I think, is to realize, you know, we're more than sexual beings. And I think one of the problems that men especially have, and this is really sad that this has been done to guys, is guys have not been allowed to experience a lot of emotions, right? The only negative emotion a man is allowed to experience is anger. If he feels lonely, lonely, insecure, um, sad, those are all bad emotions and he's not allowed to feel them. And so men are often very... Um, unaware of their emotions because they haven't been able to name them. And so having sex is often seen as safer than becoming vulnerable emotionally with your wife. And that's not fair that that was done to so many men. (laughs) Um, But the nice thing is you can grow from that. And often porn, by the way, one of the reasons that porn has, takes such a, a hook into a lot of guys isn't the porn itself. It's the fact that it becomes a way to soothe some of these negative emotions that you can't name or allow yourself to feel. So when you're feeling insecure, when you're scared about your job, when you're feeling uh, rejection, you turn to porn because it's, it's, it's like a self-soothing technique. Instead of allowing yourself to actually enter into some of those negative emotions. So, you know, when we can start to actually open up emotionally, sex becomes so much hotter. Like it really does. Because that's what fuels desire. When it isn't just about the genitals joining, it's truly about hearts joining.
0: Amen. It's it's as if we've decided that men have sexual needs and women have emotional needs. Mm-hmm. When... Both have both deeply. Mm-hmm. And I love I love what you said about, about how men have had such repressed emotions. Yeah. And so maybe what we think of as a need for sexual release is much more emotional.
1: Exactly. And a lot of times it is because we tend to channel our emotional needs into sex. Um, you know, and here's just a little tip for anyone who's raising boys – like when they start to get sad or cry or have a temper tantrum when they're two get down to their level and say it looks like you're really sad right now when people are sad they often cry is that what you're feeling you know (laughs) or if a toy gets taken away um it looks like you're feeling very frustrated right now you know because you lost the toy losing toys can be frustrating it's okay to be frustrated Well, you'll be all right in a few minutes, you know, but validate their emotions, (laughs) help them name their emotions when they're having that temper tantrum because they're leaving the park. I'm sad we have to leave the park too. When we have to do things that are sad, it's okay to feel sad, but we'll be okay in a minute, you know, (laughs) like validate these emotions, let them name them. And then they can become a lot emotionally healthier as they grow too. Because men are not innately less emotional than women. Men are not innately less emotionally healthy. We just haven't let men experience emotions.
0: It's true. And as you're saying that about little boys feeling these things, I think the exact same thing applies to men. (laughs) In the bedroom, in marriage. Yeah. Oh, you're feeling frustrated (laughs) that it's been a while. It's okay for you to feel frustrated. Yeah. (laughs) You're feeling sad because I'm not in the mood. That's okay to feel sad. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We need those same nurturing developmental conversations Mm -hmm. so that we can act like adults.
1: Yep. Yep.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much, Sheila, not only for using your voice, but giving the microphone to so many voices that also need to be heard by the world. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm really excited about The Good, what is it?
1: (laughs) The Good Guys Guide. So my original book in 2012 was The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. And um, our publisher asked my husband and me to write The Good Guys Guide together. And I also completely rewrote The Good Girl's Guide based on our survey results. So the two books are coming out in March. Um, Yeah. And maybe I can come back with my hubby and we'll share what we we learned on The Good Guys Guide.
0: That would be awesome. I'm going to put... All the links to your resources in the show notes, Um, especially don't miss out on The Great Sex Rescue. And Sheila, thank you so much for being on Husband Material today. What is your favorite thing about sexual integrity?
1: I think it's that life gets more colorful and bigger. And this kind of grows from what we were talking about, but um, when... When you have sexual integrity, you stop channeling all of your emotions into sex and you allow yourself to feel them. And then for the first time, you often let your spouse in. And it's like, all of a sudden, life just gets bigger and more colorful and more passionate. And I think that's what is amazing is it's like it's like we've gone from black and white to color.
0: <laughs> Let's go from black and white to color. Let's go from one-sided intercourse to real love making. Mhm. Tell the truth about the lies we've been taught and recover what God intended.
1: Amen. Yes, we can do it and we don't have to put up with toxic stuff anymore cuz we all want healthy and it's there for us.
0: Yeah. Thank you to everyone who's listening for being willing to consider these things and do this work so that we can all flourish.
1: Yep. Thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> You're welcome. And Guys, always remember you are God's beloved son and you, he is well-pleased.